I had a role. Right? I think role in his death makes it sound like kind of a murder mystery party, but I had, I had a role in his, his death. Okay, I think I'm doing right by him, but am I? I kind of felt like I was in a machine and the goal was to get people in and out of the hospital as fast as possible. Welcome. I'm Dr. Dawn Gross, hospice and palliative medicine physician, and this is UCSF Heart Sounds, a new series from Dying to Talk about the moment every doctor faces at some point in their medical training, the first patient death. Now, heart sounds is medical jargon for the different types of lub-dub sounds the heart makes when heard through a stethoscope. It also means the sounds our souls make when listening deeply with the heart. Please know you will be hearing real stories of death, so this may not be the podcast you want to listen to while heading to the gym or driving your children to school. Now, the beauty of podcasts is that you are in control. Remember, you can pause at any moment, take a breath, and give yourself time to reflect. And if you find yourself needing support, please head to our show website at dyingtotalk.com where you'll find resources. Every physician I speak with is as unique as the story they share. Every conversation illuminates our shared humanity. Join us as we listen to the heart of what matters most. Hi there, I'm Joanna Lin, Dying to Talk Production Director, here to tell you that this episode is different. Unlike what my colleague and amazing sound engineer Fernando Vives has been telling you before each episode, the names and details in the stories in this particular episode of UCSF Heart Sounds by Dinah Talk have not been changed. Why? Because they gave us their permission. The ideas, opinions, and viewpoints expressed remain those of the individual speaking and do not represent endorsement by Dinah Talk or UCSF. In this episode... I'll be speaking with a neurology resident in his third of four years of specialty training. To be clear, a neurologist is a type of doctor who cares for adults that have experienced a trauma to the nervous system or illnesses that affect the functioning of the brain. Join us for a conversation about death with the person who's training to save your mind. Welcome, Dr. Michael Trainer, to UCSF Heart Sounds by Dying to Talk. Thanks so much for having me. It is a pleasure. Now, to be clear, as I said in the introduction, you're in your third approaching, your final year of training to become a neurologist. Yes, counting down the months, 14 months left of my residency training, and then not sure what the next steps are, but very, very excited about my field and very passionate about the people I take care of. I can imagine that your experiences of what you thought it might be to become a neurologist and the reality of what it means to practice this specialty have perhaps evolved over time? Yeah, I think the medicine, training to be in medicine is uniquely humbling because you see certain things and you think that's what your life is going to be like and it has so many curveballs. Most of my exposure was in a clinic where I saw people headaches and Parkinson's disease. And most of my training has been in the hospital where I'm taking care of people with brain bleeds and people with all sorts of very, very catastrophic illnesses. And so 
it is much different and it's a little more grim than I expected it to be. It's interesting you choose the word grim. When you reflect back on your beginnings of medicine, either what brought you into wanting to go to medical school, wanting to become a doctor, I don't know if you knew at that point you already had an inherent interest in the nervous system or if that's something that grew on you, but it sounds like either way, you didn't necessarily expect death, hence grim, to be so immersive in the practice of this specialty. Yeah, I um, always wanted to be a pediatrician. That was what I went to medical school to do. I did a day of neurology, left the physician's office that I was working with and called my mom, called my advisor and said, nope, this is what I'm going to do. So I kind of had a big 180 And I think I got into medicine wanting to solve puzzles. I think there's a lot of people who kind of get into medicine who like that sort of way of thinking, and it's a great field for that. And more and more as I get kind of farther and farther along in training, I've realized that my identity is very much that I want to walk with people as they experience illness rather than trying to be the person who's figuring out the sort of esoteric, fascinating thing. I just want to help people through what's happening to them. I think that's a beautiful introduction then perhaps to your story about the first time you were the doctor of a person who ultimately died. And and as I recall in your sharing it, it, it was very much about walking with them. So perhaps you can walk us through that. Yeah. So as part of my training, I did a year in general adult medicine. I mean, this was actually the first patient that I ever admitted to the hospital on my first day of residency. He was a very, very delightful man in his mid-50s. He was coming into the hospital with difficulty swallowing and unfortunately had cancer of his esophagus and was being admitted to the hospital to figure out if that cancer had spread, what the doctors could do for him to help him control his pain and his symptoms and figure out what his next steps were. He was admitted to the hospital for probably about a week, and this was in June of 2020, so kind of right at the height of the COVID sort of pandemic within the hospital system, right? It was kind of right at the time that people were like, oh, maybe this isn't going away. Policies about how to handle things were not in place yet. And so he was going through this hospitalization alone. Because of isolation policies were already very strict, is that right? They were strict and they sort of were changing daily and We weren't sure how to handle it, right? I think that as time grew, most hospitals got more and more used to the idea of what does a visitor policy look like in the era of COVID? What does, yeah, I don't have another name, what's the visitor policy in the era? (laughs) In the era era of of any other pandemic we've been alive for. But at the beginning of the pandemic, the policy sort of universally became no visitors. No visitors. And this gentleman lived about four or five hours away from the hospital. Um, And so I remember these things kind of being like extremely important social context for taking care of him because unfortunately very early in his hospital course, he had a PET scan that showed that his cancer had spread all over his body. And he had very, very few options to try and extend his life. He had no options to cure his cancer and was having a lot of difficulty weighing all of these things just with his wife on the other side of the phone. But I've reflected quite a bit on kind of what my role was as, a, as an early learner, early doctor. I was the person who was spending the most time with this patient at his bedside. 
knew him and his wife and his values better than anybody, but in terms of the medical totem pole probably had the lowest amount of knowledge about his disease trajectory and the options that were available to him, but kind of viewed myself as the appropriate middle ground between the oncology fellow and specialist who I was communicating with at the end of the day to learn more about his prognosis, and then him and his wife who just had questions about how will he eat. I think that's true. One of the things that I also remember being struggling with kind of amidst all of the emotions of taking care of this man was that I felt like when I would present, so sort of the the common terminology for when a junior learner is telling someone more senior what they'd like to do, that I was being kind of told that others, different things should be happening and feeling like those recommendations from the people who knew the medicine more were not at all in line with what the human being in front of me was asking for and feeling quite a lot of kind of internal conflict about, I think I know in my heart of hearts that I'm sort of trying to steer this case in the right direction for him. Like he really wanted X, Y, Z. And then being told from my senior resident or my attending physician, no, 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 he needs this. So can you give us some specific example? Because that's a real point of tension, I can imagine. Yeah, so I think a couple days into his hospitalization, I remember him kind of clamming up, for lack of a better word, and sort of almost just being like, there is nothing, there's no conversation that I want to have anymore other than how do I get home to my house that I built in the woods so many years ago with my wife and my animals and my neighbors, and nothing else mattered to him. That was all he could entertain in a conversation. And then given his cancer type and given sort of what we already knew about his case, there was more things we wanted to know, right? More tests we wanted to run, other images we wanted to get, sort of offering him potentially radiation to help with pain. And all of those things would have delayed him getting home. And I remember having words as strong, but sort of saying he doesn't want any of these things. I, and I was, it was a weird place, right? Because I am learning and I was trying to learn. And I'm like, yes, I do think that this patient in a vacuum would benefit from radiation therapy to his spine. That would help his pain. It would sort of prevent him from accumulating more disability. I understand that. But I also have someone in front of me who's having panic attacks when I'm going and sitting at his bedside at the end of the day and telling me that he needs to get home as soon as physically possible. And so to try to orchestrate a radiation therapy, radiation oncology consult, and everything that comes along with that, I knew would be kind of diametrically opposed to what he was asking me for. And so how did it feel as, again, a brand new doctor composed of a team with people who've been in practice of the specialty for years, trying to say, I I know I don't know what, you know, the details of what you're talking about medically, but I know the details of this human being, this individual, and aren't you interested in that? Like, what was that like? I'm not going to lie. Like, I think it was, I mean, I can sort of retrospectively just remember a lot of doubt, like kind of going home at the end of the day. I'm like, okay, I think I'm doing right by him, but am I? Right? So what if, you know what I mean? These people have seen so much more than I have, right? I think I understand him, but like maybe they've met someone just like him 20 times over and they've seen things that I just don't know. So yeah, there, there's, a, there's a lot of doubt, I think, when you're making a choice and kind of 
I think with with any patient I've taken care of since, right? Is this the right thing for that person? But in that moment, I remember quite a lot of doubt, both because of my position and also disagreeing with an attending is an interesting uh, place to be as a trainee. Yeah, there's there's a real hierarchy in medicine, right? That is both structural, meaning who's allowed to do what. There, there's a very strict order of things, but there's also the unspoken respectful hierarchy and what are you allowed to question versus these are your marching orders, go do it. And so how did you reconcile it? At the end of the day, as you said, you would come in and sit with him. You would experience his emotions like, doc, get me out of here. And then you would presumably go home at some point and you're left with this questioning, am I doing right by him? How did you navigate that for yourself? How were you able to show up the next morning? Were you able to sleep at night? Like, what was that like? I don't particularly remember his case keeping me up at night. There have been many since, but this is not one of them. I think in in that moment, I did feel that the humanity and I think at this point I'm week two of intern year and have started to recognize that a lot of what I thought medicine was, kind of connecting with people, doing things to try and help them, didn't feel as genuine. I kind of felt like I was in a machine and the goal was to get people in and out of the hospital as fast as possible. And so I sort of, I think, was already starting to identify that a lot of the things that we do for people in the hospital from a diagnosis standpoint, sort of waking them up at 4 a.m. to get labs on them, didn't align with my values. And sort of, that was one one of the earlier times where I was like, is this what my whole career is gonna be like? Is it just because I'm early? And then to your question on how did I reconcile, I remember engaging the palliative care team, knowing that and having kind of a, a pre-existing knowledge of that field from medical school and knowing that that would be someone in my corner to help align the patient's care plan with his stated values and wishes. And I think just other things about his case, I mean, I remember his wife kind of driving down from five hours away and we moved him into a room next to a window so that they could have a phone call and look at each other during the phone call and talk about some of these things. and talk about their plans and she could hear the things that he was hearing because we weren't sure right with how guarded he was how much was being communicated to her not that he needed to but I think she was sort of independently feeling alone in all of this like my husband's in the hospital and he has cancer and there's nothing they can do like what does that mean what does that mean for me yeah and our relationship and how do I prepare myself sure yeah and when you can't be there in person to ask your loved one or the medical team. They talk about being isolated and outside, literally. Yeah, and I'd I'd like to think that she was probably hearing some of the same things that I was hearing at the end of the day. Like, he's like just panicking the whole day and I don't know that he's rationalizing or manipulating anything that's coming his way because he's just overwhelmed. And I could go freely in and out of the hospital and so I happened to go outside one day when she was outside and we had a meeting on the the bus sort of bus stop outside of the hospital unplanned planned but unsanctioned I had given my senior resident my pager in the middle of the day to sort of prevent interruption to that I think that's the other thing that I mentioned sort of a lot of the stuff happening at the end of the day because you're a new doctor you're sort of 
being whisked away in all different types of directions, having to sort of be the first responder for all the orders. And I think it's easy to sort of push some of the humanity aspects of your job to the side when you're so overwhelmed with writing notes and checking labs. The tasks that seem never-ending and, mm-hmm. and pretty darn impressive, particularly in turn year where you really hold it all. Yeah. So you had the foresight and the wherewithal to remove one of the greatest distractions, which is the pager. Yes. And you had a resident who recognized the value of that and didn't say, dude, that's your pager. I'm not going to be, I've already been an intern. Don't make me do that. I mean, was that a hard thing or they were like, no, absolutely. No, I I think that, you know I mean? I, I remember some sort of conflicts, like I mentioned on a individual decision level, but I remember the team being really, really supportive of trying to do right by him and people just having some differing opinions on how to do that. Mm. But everyone was on the same page and really, really motivated and connected to try and, because I think all of us know at the end of the day how sad it was to watch it happen. So when you now sit with this family member for the first time in person, undistracted, and have what I assume is a very real, direct conversation given what it is she's trying to understand what was that like yeah I think what's what I've also recognized is is difficult about being the frontline doctor for a patient and also being the person who's having these family meetings is the what and the how tend to bleed together right so yes he wants to go home but then also all of the logistics come in and out of that conversation I remember her crying quite a bit, her having a friend who lived in the city, being there, and sort of every once in a while, her name was Teresa, Teresa would ask, well, what is, what about this? Like, what, what about, what happens when we do this? And then I would sort of give, right, the medical answer to what we know, where his cancer is, and how it's going to progress based on what we could expect. And then she'd be like, okay, I want him to come home too. Like, that's what he wants. Like, I'm supporting him. Like, that's, and then her friend would sort of be like, okay, well, how do we make that happen? The practical. When can that happen? Yeah. Can we get hospice services to their rural area in Northern California? So yeah, it was, it was I think it sort of felt like wearing two hats. And I, two and a half years later, a lot of the lines are blurred, but I remember those two things. So by the end of that conversation, were you in a place then maybe less conflicted, more clear on how to communicate with the team. Here are the goals. Here are the remaining questions. What are the actions that we can take to help achieve this? Or what were you thinking? I think at this point, the part of Teresa's sort of journey down to San Francisco was with the understanding that he would be going home with her in a few days. So I think that that step was both kind of physically and emotionally like right like he's going to be discharging like how do we make discharge happen by the weekend so everyone was on the same page I think that some people had some kind of check boxes that were going to go unchecked and thinking about how to sort of perfectly manage stage four esophageal adenocarcinoma but I think we did right by sort of what Albert wanted and so when it was time to have him go home. Do you remember his reaction? Was it a finally or? Yeah, his room was kind of the first room in the VA 
that you pass by when you walk into the wards, and the medicine team work rooms were all past that. So kind of whenever I walk by that room now, I like just remember that room being very associated with like the end of my day, every day for the first two weeks of being a doctor. And I think the day before we we knew he was going home in the morning was kind of when he sort of, I don't want to say it was less guarded, but like sort of broke down a little bit and kind of let the reality of what was happening hit him. Amidst all his medical problems, we also talked about lots and lots of things, right? His favorite books, my favorite books, sort of what we did for fun outside work. And he had sort of shared his favorite author with me previously, and I had never heard of this author. And when Teresa came to pick him up, brought him a sort of change of clothes, it was sort of we worked and finagled to get her to be able to come into the hospital to walk him out of the hospital. That was no small feat, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I actually, in, in anticipation of this conversation, looked back in his his medical record and, you know, and saw sort of all these notes from the attending about why this was necessary and all of these things. So things that maybe I didn't see or notice in the moment, but yeah, lots of, lots of work went into that. And as he's sort of leaving, he hands me a book from his favorite author and says it's his favorite one and that he wants me to read it and remember him after he's gone. The title of the book is The Captain is Out to Lunch and the Sailors Have Taken Over the Ship. And he referred to himself as the captain and that he was going out to lunch, meaning that he was going to die. And that was as far as his metaphor went. But I remember kind of, again, being particularly touched that in his kind of days, right, D-A-Z-E of being in the hospital, in orchestrating going home, that he called his wife and told her to bring this book to give to me. That was, yeah. A clear intentionality and a realization, right? A reckoning, perhaps, with what this meant, this transition in his life. Have you ever, up until that point, received a gift in that way from a patient of acknowledging, essentially, I'm never going to see you again, not because I don't plan to come back to the hospital, thanks so much, but because I'm dying and I want you to remember me? Not at this point, no. It's happened once since, and I kind of keep them both in the, the same place in my apartment. Um, but no, this was this was a first... And of course you learn in medical school, right? Don't accept gifts from patients. But this was this was not that. Yeah, this is a legacy, right? So in that moment of receiving that, do you remember what that felt like for you? Like, again, the magnitude of what this human being is saying to you? Not particularly. I don't, I don't, you know, it's kind of like, I even think about it today. It's like when you get a card from someone and you're like, do I open this right now? Do I read this in front of you? Or do I like take it and sort of process this on my own later? And I, I probably chose the latter because I, I also think that I'm not the type of person who cries very often. And I, I can remember there's only been two or three kind of patients throughout training that I've cried in regard to their case. And it was never Albert in the moment. It was when I read the inscription sort of after he had already left the hospital. As I'm sure many listeners of this podcast are aware, right? You have a deeply emotional moment in medicine, and then you're called to do something kind of entirely different, and sort of you you learn to not 
reflect in the middle of the day or you're encouraged to not reflect in the middle of the day because that's a, a time-intensive process. You don't have that time until you're off the clock. So you tucked this it. away. Yeah, I read it probably that night when I went home. I don't remember. I don't, I don't remember sort of where I was when I read it. Do you remember your reaction though yeah. as you read it? Yeah. Can you tell us? It's a little, it, yeah, I think that there's been lots of people who I guess I had interacted with and I knew and they had sort of, they had died and I, I didn't feel sort of connected or, or linked to their death in any way. And in his case, I was, you know what I mean, inexorably linked to his death. So just to be clear, when you say there had been other people, you mean in your life, just in my life. personally, yeah. not as a clinician. Yeah, I had a role, right? I think role in his death makes it sound like kind of a murder mystery party, but I had I had a role in his, his death in a, a pivotal moment for him and to kind of read kind of a, a raw expression of gratitude about how I impacted his last few weeks on earth was, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't have words for that. That's. Do you think he'd like you to share that or is that private? Is that personal between the two of you? I think I can share. Dr. Trainer. few times in one's life, you meet a person of commitment and compassion. You are that person. I hope you enjoy these tales you're about to read. I'm so glad to have met you and fell under your care. May you live long and a productive, have a productive life. Sorry about the writing on my part. Can't seem to focus. Bear with me. Albert, 70 years old. So then what happened? He went home. And I was so happy. Because he did what he wanted to do. He had a long car ride home. And I was like, great. I think two days later, maybe, might have been, I, or it was the middle of the day, so I must have. But I called his house just to see how things were. I don't routinely do that for patients who are discharged, but this one was special. And he had died that morning. And his wife was kind of just sobbing on the other end, and the coroner was in their house at the time that I had called. And so that was another kind of gut punch. I didn't think he was going to die within 48 hours of being home. All these things that he had hoped to do, people he had hoped to see. I don't, it'd be a lie if I said that I thought I failed him in getting him home. But it, you know, you, you start to then calculate, oh, if he had gotten home X days sooner. I don't think I had a lot of those thoughts, but it was kind of jarring that he died so quickly. I wonder if his memory, if in his explicit request of you to remember him, as well as the fact that you remember this, has maybe influenced how you listen for and how you think about when someone says, this is what I want, that your confidence in advocating for that, given how short his time was, ultimately when he did go home, is there a greater sense of, of urgency and sort of absolute, we got to do this, folks. I don't have time to think about all the other things we're interested in. This is what they're saying, and we, we got to move. I think so. I think, I don't know that selfishly is the right word, but also this case I sort of felt very validated in what I decided to advocate for, right? I think the, the scenario that didn't happen but could have happened was that if he only had two days to live, 
that he could have died in the hospital, which would have been the absolute opposite of what he asked of us as clinicians, right? That was the only thing he didn't want. You never know, right? You always, you never know if someone has a couple days or sometimes you know if it's going to be a few hours, but sort of in these times that you're taking care of people to really know, right, can I keep you till Friday and get you home for the weekend? Do I have to rush and send you home today? I don't know that I feel any better about that these days. I feel the same amount of resolve that if someone tells me what they want, that I have to listen. Like my job is to give them information about the medical aspects. I've totally built language that the patient and their family member, their surrogate, whoever it may be, is the expert on what they need in their life. I am the expert in the disease that they have and that the, the, goal of our interaction is to figure out how those two can overlap in the best way possible. I think it's been easier as I've gone through training to not be the second week intern and have a lot more confidence in the diagnosis, in the management strategy, in the risks of making X choice benefits. It's just helped me have those conversations sort of more humbly almost, like, yeah, I, this could happen, this could happen, right? Like, let's talk through all these possibilities for you. So I'm noticing I have two questions and I don't want to lose track of either of them. One is after that conversation with his wife, which, as you shared, was an unexpected uh, focus of conversation. You didn't think he was going to have died that soon. And so to encounter a grieving spouse in the acuity, in the immediacy of loss. How did you navigate that? And did you end up talking with your team about that, letting them know? And if so, what was that like? And if not, why not? I do remember telling my team, almost sort of like an obligation of like a fact of like just, hey, this happened. Like we did this and this happened. And I think you all would want to know. I don't remember taking any particular time or steps to to process the phone call. I don't remember, I can't, I can't remember if it was on a day off. I can't remember if it was a day that I was in the hospital, but I remember the call. And I think that that's kind of funny to me, the way that, that memories persist. Like, it could have been 5 in the afternoon, it could have been 10 in the morning, I could have been walking outside or in a dark room in the hospital, and I just don't remember any specifics. So I lost track of your second question. That's okay. It was more, what was it like for you in essentially being thrust in the middle mm. of a person who is presumably in some pretty significant depth of grief that you weren't expecting to walk into that conversation, right? If you were calling as a bereavement call, there's a certain emotional, mental expectation of how you might navigate that call. But given that you weren't expecting this... How did you work your way through it? Do you even recall? I remember her having to hand the phone off, in part her own grief and in part the fact that the coroner was physically in the house. So I, I think I was rescued, so to speak, by kind of a logistic sort of, I don't know, distractions. 
not even a fair word for it, but I remember a redirect. Kind of, yeah, briefly, briefly talking to her sister and sort of doing what we all do, which is let me know how I can help, but not much past that. I guess some other things that I've always done I, I, in high school, I mean, had some classmates who died and have made a point to keep their death date in my phone, almost like a birth date, and set an annual reminder and text their parents or their friends and did that for this case. I've had lots of patients die since and I think there's probably only two or three who I've put that in. But I, I get a reminder annually on the date of his death. I think at the one-year anniversary of his death, I tried to call his wife and didn't get through and left a message. And then maybe again a couple months later and didn't get through. And then at that point, have not continued to call and leave a message. But I'm reminded of it each year. Do you find that somehow comforting or... What what is the experience? You know, why do you why do you persist? I think when people die, that right memorialization is important. However, that may be, I think, particularly for him, just kind of the the nature of our conversations often was about things like memory and legacy and sort of worrying about his wife after he died. So I, there was kind of a sense of wanting to honor that. And then I think there's a, there's a personal sort of sense of it. I, I'm a very logic, make a spreadsheet for everything. And it's something about having sort of the calendar date and connecting with someone who's more proximal to the person who has died and is grieving. And surely they know that date and reminding them that I remember that date too and I remember their person um, I think has a lot of meaning as well. So I'm curious, I heard you say earlier in our conversation that you're not one to cry and there's only been a couple times and I do recall that there is a time that you were brought to tears. In front of a patient, this is the only time this was one of the first patients that I had die as a senior resident, which I actually think is almost a, a sort of a different feeling. I think that at each stage of my training, I may have a different sort of response to a patient death. but Because of your role? Role on uh -huh. the team. Not in the, the kind of idea of someone I cared for dying, but how did I interface with their time in the hospital or their time in my clinic. Your responsibility in it or... So this one I'm convinced could be like a TV show in itself, just like on the power of amazing friendships. This was a woman in her 70s who had lost her husband to cancer many years prior and was part of this group of widows, and there was four of them, and they did everything together, and they were best friends, and they had a phone call every day at mid-morning, and one day she didn't answer the phone, and so her little group of friends was like, we know that she doesn't have anything on her calendar, like, we know everything about each other, something is wrong, she should be answering her phone, and they called the police, and they were like, it has been two hours, we are not doing a missing persons or a wellness check or whatever. It's 
call us if it's still an issue. And so one of them had their sons go break into her house. Sorry. So the police said... I think the police had dismissed like it's too the idea soon. of we checking. Don't, we don't get involved just in two hours time kind of thing. Just because she didn't answer her phone. Right. But the this group of friends they were knew. like... They knew. So they took th- matters into their own hands. Yeah. So one of their sons, whether he had a key or slipped in through a window... In the story that I've built the TV show in my head, he broke into the he broke into her house, and she was kind of we say it in medicine all the time, right? Found down. She was kind of laying next to a chair, unable to speak. Came into the hospital. She had a massive stroke in the left side of her brain, which completely took away her ability to produce language. And she had no children. And I remember her best friend kind of having to be put in this position of being her voice the whole time she was in the hospital and her telling me exactly when the stroke happened. She had had breast cancer and so she was like, her wig was on, but her coffee pot was not on when my son was in their house. So the stroke happened between this hour and this hour because she puts her wig on every morning at this time, has a cup of coffee at this time. And I was just amazed (laughs) at that kind of just level of connection between the two of them. The intimacy of knowledge of a person's working of their life. That was kind of an amazing display of love for me. And with how Julie's stroke was, she was very sleepy, sort of could sometimes move. A lot of times in neurology, we we decide whether or not someone can produce language and understand language, separating the two things. Our thought was that she could understand some language, but not enough to engage in conversations and make decisions about her own care. So her friend stepped in, and just the way that she described her life and talked about what it would look like to recover from a stroke of this size, and I remember kind of being in the room and her saying, as as I kind of laid out, right, best case scenario, worst case scenario, most likely scenario for what I think will happen after the stroke of the size, her friends kind of saying, nope, like she wants to go be with her husband. Like, what did that look like? And that wasn't even one of the things that I had mentioned. That wasn't the three descriptions of best case, worst case, likely case. I had probably said, you know what I mean? Like this could kill her, right? I'm I'm usually pretty forward with that because I think we, we hurt people when we don't tell them that's a possibility. And then I remember kind of seeing an arm from the bed kind of fly up and it was a thumbs up. When the, the friend patient, said yeah. she wants to go be with her husband. Yeah, her kind of functioning arm. Shot up with a up. thumbs up. She, she was, right, I'm sort of facing her on like the couch next to the bed and the bed's in the periphery of my vision and I see the patient's hand kind of move up in that way. I was like, all right, it sounds like we agree. And we just got to talking kind of in front of her about her life and her story. And yeah, there was something about that interaction, I think what I've had a hard time with sometimes as a neurologist is often the person has dementia or a stroke that takes their language or something where they can't speak for themselves. And I'm having to have these really tough decisions about the end of their life with their friends, their family. Something about that just really got to me and I, I allowed myself to cry in, in front of both of them. So the thumb... All of it. Reinforcing, but that, yeah. right, that I hear you... She's right. I need to go be with my husband. Yeah. Like the totality of that interaction touched you in a way that you 
allowed yourself to be touched in front of them. Yeah. And I, I think that, I mean, I remember that case so fondly because senior resident, right, you're a little removed from the pager. And I was able to sort of, the day that she died, write a note to all of the interns and everybody who had taken care of, because I had learned so much about her life because of her friends. Her friend had sent me kind of pictures of her when she was well and all the girls trips that they had taken in the years prior. And there was just kind of something about that case, the whether it be the interaction between the group of friends that I just found so endearing, the best friend and how she advocated for her and really confidently, and I think you probably know this too, it's kind of rare for someone to just be like, nope, they want to die. They do, it happens. But when it happens and you're like, okay, crystal clear, like I got it. And then have the patient sort of in her own way, like I wasn't even really sure that she could hear what we were saying half the time, her hand bolt up out of the bed. And then just to have this just lovely conversation about her life was, yeah, that's a very kind of powerful mix of things. So were you surprised when you found yourself crying? Yes and no. I I, I sort of advertise this. I'm not someone who cries very often, (laughs) and and that is true. I, I can sort of always think about, it tends to be in sort of extraordinary examples of kind of love and friendship where I just kind of feel overtaken by it. Pixar movies are notorious. <laughs> I don't cry at many things, but the, the, average, Pixar. the average Pixar movie can get to me. But yeah, this was this was one of the kind of cases where just raw in the moment, I was like, wow, this is a really special bond these people have and she and her husband have. And Was her friend, did she remark on the fact that you were crying or it just was part of what was happening in the moment? She was crying too and it was what was happening in the moment. Was there anyone else from the team in the room with you, nurse, or did you talk about with your team? I know you said you shared a note after she died and what have you, but did you share your personal experience side of it? I think um, neurology rounds are not typically an emotionally laden time. (laughs) Um, I I remember the service being particularly light. Meaning not so many patients. Not so many patients to go see, and we sort of have a blocked off amount of time for patient care in the morning and pausing, not... She had passed, but outside of, you know, in a patient's room the day after she had passed and saying that I was particularly touched by this case and think it took that as an opportunity to do a a gratitude rounds of sorts. So we didn't have as many patients to see, but I wanted everyone from the team to share something they were particularly thankful for if they weren't comfortable, right, because that's kind of a surprise amount of vulnerability right like what that doesn't happen on rounds you just sprung that on (laughs) i gave them an out i don't remember what it was but i do know that i gave them an out because i i think i was like i'm going to share emotion here i don't want other people to feel like they have to share emotion if they're not comfortable i might have given them like something you're looking forward to in the future or something Mm, like mm. that something equally sort of tell me something about you that has nothing to do with rounding rounding but yeah that case in particular i think that's one of two like i know that's the only time that i've like paused rounds to as a senior resident be like let's have a moment about humanity right now wow yeah was it how was it received <laughs> pretty well i think my attending probably looked at me with <laughs> some cross like, eyes wait, he's like that's fine as long as we're done in time like uh, whatever <laughs> do you think about doing that more like i do it's something that I, I right, you, you pick up little things along your practice and feeling so 
kind of connected to that email. Like, wow. Like, I learned what that person did in their 30s when I took care of them in their 80s. That's amazing. Mm. I was never able to achieve that level of detail in someone I took care of for, I mean, a six-day hospitalization. But if I got enough, right, I, I knew their kids, I knew what they did for a living, I knew what they, where they lived, what they loved to do, it's worth sharing. So I've, I've tried to share those things in an email. It's things like that too, I think, that as I've kind of struggled with burnout as a resident, like those things are extra time, so to speak, at the end of your day, and you're like, I've already worked so many hours today. But those are the things that go into extra hours that restore you. Won't restore everyone, but it does for me. I think that's really profound what you just shared. And that it sounds like over the time of your training and perhaps even in this last year of formal training, though we know as physicians we're forever learning, that you have paid attention to and given attention to what does restore you and the importance of noticing that and therefore being intentional about giving yourself time and energy to do that, that that isn't just an extra, maybe I'll get to it, what have you, but that this too is actually part of what makes it possible for you to continue to go toward and practice medicine, knowing, as you said in the beginning of our conversation today, that it is more grim than you anticipated. Yeah, I, I even am surprised I use the word grim, right? I, I, I think because... Maybe I'm like you in the sense that if I'm, someone's like, hey, what's your particular interest within medicine? I'm like, I end of life in patients <laughs> with Alzheimer's disease. That is my, really? that is my particular that. interest within medicine. Wow. And they say, that's so depressing. That's awful. And I'm like, don't tell me how it is. Like, I think it's great in its own way. I, mean, I hate that it's happening, but I, I like doing it because without someone who likes doing it, that is a horrible, horrible way to die for the patient and their family to watch that happen with no guidance. So, I, yeah, I'm surprised I used the word grim. I, after I said it, I was like... You want to take it back? I, I don't want to take it back because I, I, I think that maybe the, the meaning behind it is that depending on what field you go into and maybe neurology specifically, I wasn't expecting to be in the face of death as often as I was. That's clear. Yeah. That's clear to me in that definition of grim. So... Before we close, I wonder if you could share with us what it is that brings you a sense of, and I will invoke the word joy, purpose, and perhaps gratitude in getting to work with people who are living with Alzheimer's dementia. It's almost never the person with Alzheimer's. I think for anyone who has a family member sort of plagued by this disease or is a clinician who's seen a patient Right, you see those people in clinic and, hi, sir, how are you today? I'm great. How's your memory? It's great. And you turn to their caregiver, almost always their wife or daughter who's with them in the room, and they roll their eyes aggressively and can't decide how much of their lived experience they want to unload in this 30-minute clinic visit. And there's something about arming those people with correct information and with understanding and how trying to help protect them against the things that I've seen ruin other families, like not having finances in order, not having an advanced directive when the cognitive impairment is mild enough that the person can participate in their decision-making. Sparing people kind of an, an awful end 
is, yeah, it's my, I feel like it's my purpose, like to help people understand what is happening to them and what could happen in the future. Even if I can't fix it, I think a lot of people don't like my field because they're like, you can't fix that. There's so much to say that I, I helped someone through it. I sort of sometimes am ashamed to say that I, I like those harder clinic visits. Most of my co-residents are very happy to have those patients move into my clinic panel, but it just feels right. It's like what people need. What you just shared reminds me of uh, something I've heard incredible champion and perhaps trailblazer in the field of medicine and restoring the heart of medicine, uh, Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen. And she developed a course at UCSF originally, but it's spread nationally, if not internationally at this point, um, the heart of medicine, where she talks about even when there is no cure possible, right? There is much healing that we can be supporting people in. And she says it far more eloquently, but I, I hear that, right? That to be able to walk with people, even though there's something that can't be reversed or stopped, there is still much life to be lived and to allow people to experience that life with guidance, with illumination of the road ahead so they can make choices rather than what you and certainly I have seen of when people are blind, you know, in the dark. Often people talk about, I, I don't know what to expect and that's incredibly scary. And the privilege of illuminating something maybe they wished weren't true and that it weren't the case. And yet, once you see the road ahead, to not be alone on that path that you are invited in. And I hear the, the honor that you experience in being part of that is profound. Yeah. I cry more than I lead on. My grandfather's blessings. Yes. Uh, that book was... That's Dr. Remen's. Yeah, yes. Dr. Remen's book. Yes. I think that, yeah, different, totally different concept but like sort of how do you, you cope with medical training there's a lot of people who find tons of value in conversations like this mine has always been reading someone else's words and being like yes those are the words that i want and that book and then elderhood by louise Anner mm -hmm. aronson those another two, ucsf doc. yeah yes. those two sort of i've visited them multiple times as a trainee and been like okay there are people who think about medicine how i do because sometimes as a trainee you you don't have the power to make the choices yourself and you are practicing underneath someone else and by extension practicing underneath their values and that can lead to some internal conflict as well. And so as you approach now being the decision maker, yeah. <laughs> is there a new kind of experience where you do get to be the one who says how this is going to go and does that feel... What? Exciting? Scary? Intimidating? Both. All of the above. Yeah, all yeah. of the above. <laughs> sort of, sort of, right? By the, by the same back logic that I could apply to my attending dealing with a day one intern. Yeah, yeah, you had a good conversation with him, but like all these things could go wrong. <laughs> let's, like, let's, let's talk about all these things yeah. that could go really, really wrong if we do your plan. I think what I'm going to protect against, that's how I'm not worried about, not hoping for, what I have to protect against is being sort of a couple levers insulated from talking to the patient directly. How do I put myself in a position to be as understanding of their values so that I can 
guide the trainees sort of in the same way. Yeah, I hear this intention for empathy. How do I maintain an empathetic ear as I am also directing this team and, and having other agendas thrust yes. upon me? Recommending all of the studies <laughs> that need to be sent on their yeah. lumbar puncture. Yeah. Yes. Well, I am really excited for you in this role of leadership and and expertise and maintaining that heartfelt ear listening for what matters most for the patients that you and your team will be serving. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank for, you for having me. It's a real pleasure. I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in to this episode of UCSF Heart Sounds, a production of Dying to Talk. My hope is that by hearing Dr. Michael Trainer tell his story, you'll be inspired to share your own. That sharing is not only a gift for those who listen, it's also a moment of healing for those who share. That's why we've created a couple of ways to make it easy to engage with community around these stories. The first is something I call huggles. It's a riff on the term huddles, which is something doctors do as we walk around the hospital with our teams seeing patients. You can think of a huggle like a book club for audio, where friends come together with the intention of giving each other the experience of being held and hugged as you reflect on what you've heard. You can also check out our Slack channel to join an online huggle. It's all at our website, dyingtotalk.com. Also on our website, you'll find a link to a very brief survey. Your feedback is essential. And to make it enticing for you, we will be selecting two lucky winners for each episode who will receive $50 gift certificates from Rise Up Bakery and Wholesome Bakery. And for folks who offer feedback on the entire season, you'll be in the running for one of two $75 gift certificates. While not required, we do hope this may encourage you to gather your friends for a food for thought huggle where you can break bread and share delicious treats as you share your own stories. This episode of UCSF Heart Sounds was produced by the team of Dying to Talk, sound engineer Fernando Vivez, production supervisor Joanna Lynn, and executive producer Matt Martin. Music has been created and generously provided by Craig Minowa of the band Cloud Cult. This show is made possible by the UCSF Community Wellbeing Grant. I'm your host, Dr. Don Gross. Thanks so much for listening.